Though the global pandemic may be slowing things down, Spring Branch is taking tangible steps forward to keep our economy strong, like supporting our local businesses, linking them to free online business courses, and help from our top leaders. Spring Branch is working for businesses. Yours. Find out more at sbmd.org. Hi, everyone. It's Nancy with Looped In. And you may have noticed that we've been absent for a couple weeks, vacations, stories, just life, really. And... We are working on some really good episodes, but until we can get those posted, we wanted to repost one of our favorites from the past. It is called Houston Real Estate 101, and it is a super interesting conversation with a local real estate analyst who talks about all kinds of interesting and even some wacky things about Houston real estate, like why some Houston neighborhoods were designed to look like English cemeteries or why 59, a.k.a. 69, veers off at a 90-degree angle toward Sugar Land. So anyway, please enjoy this rerun of Houston Real Estate 101 and stay tuned for more to come. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate, the dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Nancy Sarnoff, real estate reporter with the Houston Chronicle, and I am here with Erin Mulvaney, who is joining us from her new base in Washington, D.C. Hi, Erin. Hey, Nancy. How you doing? Good, good. So glad we're back together. I know. I'm sorry I sound a little weirder than usual, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to still be be here, even if it's on the phone. So... Yeah. I'll let you introduce our guest today. Okay, yeah. So today on our show, we will be talking to Scott Davis. Scott works for Myers Research, a technology and real estate consulting firm. I've known Scott for a while. I've I talked to him for a lot of my stories and I can tell you guys he's a really smart guy when it comes to real estate, home building. He's been in a bunch of different roles over the years in the local real estate market. He led the Houston Office of Metro Study. He's been a commercial real estate broker. And a long time ago, he worked in the property department for Kroger, the big grocery chain. Scott Davis, welcome to Looped In. Thanks, Nancy and Aaron. It's great to be here. So, Scott, you have got a whole lot of institutional knowledge about Houston real estate, including a whole presentation you've done on the history of development in Houston. So we want to talk to you about that, as well as get your take on the current state of affairs and housing here. But first, we've got to talk Trump. (laughs) You ready for that? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Our real estate developer president, right? That's right. It's a he big is. day for LinkedIn. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is. Real estate developer president. <laughs> so I know that there's still a whole lot of unknowns out there, but do you think a Trump presidency is going to impact the housing market? Well, I think it's still too soon to know for sure what effects the Trump presidency will have. I think the way that most people are probably looking at it today is it may or may not help, but it won't hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think some of the policies promoted and favored by Secretary Clinton probably would have been more harmful to the industry uh, in terms of some of the environmental regulations um, in particular is an issue that affects Houston mm-hmm. today. So uh, I, I think the outlook of the building industry of it for a President Trump is more hoping to just be left alone. 
Yeah. Rather than having to contend with uh, a new set of regulations and changes. You know, real estate developers have a complicated history with the government, as we'll talk about in, in their influence in Houston. And I think we tend to think of ourselves as cowboys who go out on our own and, and make things happen, which is true to an extent. It's a very entrepreneurial and risk business, but there's also a lot of government influence, and particularly in areas like New York City, where Trump is from, uh, there tends to be a lot of maybe collusion is too strong a word between the property community and the government uh, in terms of getting things approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, what most people in the real estate industry look for uh, from the government is just a clear understanding of what the rules are and that they be consistently enforced. Mm-hmm. And and I, so I think probably people are looking for some stability to know that this is the playing field. Um, you know, another potential change for Clinton versus Trump is, and this affects more the development side than the builder side necessarily, is we probably won't see any changes in the way that carried interests are taxed. Most investors and developers, particularly the developers or sponsorship of investment funds, uh, are compensated on something like the 2 and 20 model, like a hedge fund, where they get a small maintenance fee and then uh, uh, back-ends profit participation. And right now, those are taxed at capital gains tax rates. Mm-hmm. One of Clinton's proposals was to tax those at ordinary income rates, which would effectively double the tax going into most development projects. So I think that's an area of stability, too, the real estate community is going to look for from President Trump. See, Aaron, I told you he was a smart guy. I was about to say, like, I couldn't totally follow all that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Just throw that in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it sounds kind of like, I mean, my, my reaction is it sounds like you, you think Trump might step back a little more. I know, like, like the market kind of regulate itself and, you know, nationally, like you kind of mentioned environmental regulations and things like that. So maybe Trump will step back more than some of Clinton's um, policies might have done. Yeah, Aaron, I think that I think that's true. Um, and I think he's going to face some pretty significant opposition with some of his other policies. So hopefully that will urge him to proceed cautiously and kind of build consensus before he just starts implementing policies. Mm hmm. Well, hopefully he'll release his tax returns, too, and we'll be able to see what a good real estate developer he is or or he isn't. <laughs> well, and now that he's in charge of the federal government, he can probably cancel the IRS audit that was keeping him from releasing them. Oh, man. So it's uh, it's been a crazy season. I think the best thing we can say about the election is that it's over. Yeah, agree. Agree to agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's talk about the housing market. Let's talk about Houston. Let's get local here. Um, I wrote a story this week that said sales have been pretty flat overall. Prices have been up. This is in the existing home market, used homes. You know, houses are staying on the market a little bit longer, but generally things are still kind of chugging along. We haven't seen any kind of massive downturn. Do you think that's coming or do you think there's more of a correction to come you know, that, uh, Nancy, that's a good question. I, I don't think either one of those things are coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen in the business cycle index that the Dallas Fed puts together, it tracks several leading indicators for the economy. It's been up since uh, July. We're about 45% up on our rig count. Uh, and the PMI finally crossed into 50 for Houston uh, last week. So all of those are, are more bullish signs in the economy. I think instead we're likely to see two things. Uh, probably through the end of 2017, we'll see the market continue to stay flat. 
we probably will see continued compression in the spread between the listing price and the sales price. We know those are coming down, but more asking prices than sales prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen the rate of increase, particularly more on the new home market, pull back. Mm-hmm. The existing market's held steady at about 5%. The new home market shot up to almost 15% a year, uh, which is about three times the increase in household income uh, mm-hmm. here in Houston. So we've seen that pull back to about 5%. Uh, and then we'll see growth probably resume in about 2018. So the uh, the other thing that I think we're seeing is a transition uh, in all of the Texas markets, but but Houston for sure, to become more like housing markets we see in the rest of the country, mm-hmm. where there is no entry-level new home market, uh, to where that is almost completely satisfied by the existing home sales market. Uh, and and the, the new home market overall maybe has a smaller share. Mm-hmm. Like, What are the consequences for Houston not having those entry-level homes, you know, kind of the first-time home buyers, you know, or the afford- affordability, you know, issue that has always been, has been kind of like a growing issue in Houston? Sure, Aaron, that's a great question. I mean, uh, home sales are a huge part of our economy. I just tabulated some numbers really quickly. We sell about 80,000 used homes a year at an average price of about $230,000. And right now, about 25,000 new homes at an average price of about $340,000. That's over $25 billion in the economy every year that gets spent on housing in Houston. Uh, So it's a a pretty sizable contributor to our local economy. And in today's environment, uh, about 40% of Houston area households can't afford the median priced new home. Uh, There's Um. a, a... a smaller share that can afford that entry-level home. But as you look at uh, the cost that we've seen increase, whether it's increased land costs because of the demands that we've seen, if it's uh, additional interest cost because we've had to go to non-bank lenders because the traditional banks are limited in their lending, or some of the increased regulations that we've seen uh, has really priced uh, those starter homes out of the reach of a lot of people. And uh, I think it could have some I don't know if I would say significant consequences, but it can certainly will certainly change the way we think about Houston. Well, we've mm-hmm. talked about how you know how these new suburbs kind of are going to pop up. People are going to drive longer distances to buy homes, and that's always been the case in Houston. But right. it seems like it's maybe being taken to a, a whole new level um, with just the you know lack of affordable housing close in. You know, people are potentially going to drive fifty miles. To commute in and out of the city. Sure. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we looked at people in that price range are, are driving an, an, an average of about 30 to 31 miles. Uh, but there's a, a big chunk of people that are driving between 40 and 60 miles already today. And when we begin to think about uh, the challenges of supplying that housing product that people want mm-hmm. um, in this market, you know, we're going to see two things. We're going to see people go a lot farther away. And we're going to see more dense product. Uh, and one of the unique things about Houston, because we don't have zoning within the city, uh, we've seen a lot of experimentation in, particularly inside the loop, with townhomes and you know the six pack and the ten pack type product. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen a lot of experimentation with density that we're now starting to see out in some of the suburban markets. So I think we'll see a mixture of both. 
And when you think about the big picture for Houston, we're projected to have almost 10 million people by 2040. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a 50% increase over what we have today. Uh, we've got to put those people somewhere. Yeah. And so I think it's going to involve both those mm-hmm. strategies, the density and the traditional drive until you qualify uh, mm-hmm. that we've always had here to okay. provide places for those people to live. That whole drive until you qualify thing, um, we were joking yesterday because that I felt like, so yesterday was Dr. Bill Gilmer of U of H, an economist. He gave this, you know, this big speech that everyone was waiting for about the economy. And that comment he made about driving till you qualify to afford a house, that got the biggest laugh of of the day. And we were like, that's the oldest joke in the book, <laughs> right? Right. We were kind of my it's colleague, a cliche, right? It's, and, yeah, and my colleague. I mean, it's true, but it's it's true everywhere. And um, my colleague and I were were giggling about that. <laughs> that was pretty funny. So um, I guess uh, maybe the building community in particular has a, an appetite for really bad jokes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I don't know. I it just I guess everyone can kind of relate to that, but. Anyway, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, with what Aaron and I do, we're always told to, when we write stories about real estate and development, we're always told to look forward, look ahead, anticipate what's, uh, what's on the horizon. And I think it's important, obviously, to step back and look at, look at history. And that's something that you've done in a pretty compelling way. You've done a bunch of research on um, Houston's development history. What, what made you do that? Why do you think it's important to do that? Well, it's... Uh... It's always something that I've been always uh, had an interest in. Uh, I'm actually a native Houstonian, so uh, wow, I've been here a, a long time. So I've seen a lot of the history, and and like y'all do with your stories and mm-hmm. most of the presentations I give to clients, it's either what's going on right now or what do you see down the road. And yeah. uh, I had the opportunity uh, was approached by a couple of clients who are teaching a class at the University of Houston mm-hmm. Masters in Real Estate program on residential development. And they asked me if I would put together a lecture on the history of uh, Houston real estate development, with, particularly with respect to housing. And uh, the more I got into it, I, there were a lot of really interesting and compelling stories uh, and trends that you could see in that that time. So uh, I certainly enjoyed doing the lecture. I'm going to do it again for them this spring. Uh, it, it's uh, It's interesting to me to talk about something else besides – what do I see in the housing market 18 months down the road? So let's talk about how Houston developed over the years. The late 1880s till around the 1920s, there was this era of streetcar suburbs where we saw these, um, what are now kind of these quaint neighborhoods like the Heights, Westmoreland District, and West U, which you could argue has really turned over. It's not quite right. quaint anymore. It's more like, you know, River Oaks light. Um, <laughs> But, you know, some of those neighborhoods have retained kind of that that early character character where you think, oh, yeah, I could imagine a streetcar, you know, going down some of these these streets. Well, uh, that really was the first era, I guess, in in reference to our conversation about Trump earlier. The Allen brothers came here in 1836 to drain the swamp, (laughs) uh, which they did. Uh, And so by the time the city started growing into that 1880s, we saw the streetcar suburbs similar to what you see all over the country. You can go out to, uh, I still think of it as the East End, but I guess technically it's Edo now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a line that ran out Harrisburg. Down the route of the Gulf Freeway uh, out to Cullen, there was a line. There was a line out Bel Air Boulevard that actually went all the way into Bel Air 
uh, and then we had a line that ran up into the heights. Mm-hmm. And so that was what people saw. You see the typical, like you see in the heights, the craftsman-style homes. Uh, a lot of those homes actually came out of the Sears Robot catalog, if you can believe that. Um, <laughs> the original ones anyway. Oh, I've heard that, that you could order like a house on in the catalog before. I was in one of those once in um, the near Northside neighborhood. It was really, they were like, yeah, I think this was ordered out of the catalog or something. <laughs> Right, Which so kind of cool. we still saw a lot of suburbs and commuting, but it, but it was by streetcar, and that really uh, those lines ran until about the 1930s. And in many cities, they were actually bought out by the automobile manufacturers uh, and the bus companies uh, because they didn't want to see competition for automobiles. And so, the next few decades, we saw the growth of what you call the garden suburb, which it's funny to consider neighborhoods like River Oaks, Riverside Terrace, and Old Brazewood suburbs. Um, right. But back then, they were, right? I mean, they were pretty they were, far out. Absolutely. So uh, what changed primarily for Houston, there were three things that changed in the early 20th century. First, you had the great storm of 1900 in Galveston, mm-hmm. which was the, you know, the Katrina of the 20th century, uh, completely destroyed the city at that time. Uh, the Strand was the Wall Street of the Southwest. Galveston was the primary city or had been the primary city in, in Texas. Uh, Houston was really competing with it. Uh, but after the storm, shortly after that, they discovered oil in Spindletop and Beaumont. Houston was the next, was the largest city adjacent to that. Shout out to Beaumont, Aaron. Shout out to Beaumont. That's where she's from. Oh, from the uh, the tree-lined West End? Well, I am from the West End, Um side of Beaumont, but I always kind of wondered why, I mean, Beaumont has a natural port, um, and, you know, it was where Spindletop uh, busted or whatever, boomed or whatever. Um, like, why didn't, Beaumont, why is, what gives? Like, why did Houston take over Beaumont? Yes, Scott, what curious. gives? What, what gives? gives? I would say Jesse Jones <laughs> is what gives, uh, because he <laughs> primarily led the effort in 1914 to dig a 50-mile ship channel from Houston to the coast. Can you imagine trying to get that done today? Uh, and so mm-hmm. while Galveston was tied up raising the island 17 feet and building the seawall, we dug a 50-mile trench out to uh, out to the bay, and that coincided with the opening of the Panama Canal. And from then on, it was boomtown for Houston. Yeah. And so we began we to see— We stole Beaumont's thunder, for We sure. stole Beaumont and Galveston's thunder. It was like a twofer. <laughs> so uh, from then on, you know, we, we began to experience pretty significant growth. And in the early 20s, as a result of that, we really wrestled with how to handle that growth here in Houston. And then we kind of see the the second figure in Houston real estate, which which is uh, Will C. Hogg. Uh, I'm a Hogg's brother, son of the governor. And uh, he was actually the first planning commissioner in Houston. And so in the, the mid-20s, we had an election to determine if we should have zoning. Um, he actually backed out of promoting that election because he felt like it would lose, and it did. It was mm-hmm. the first of three times we voted for zoning or voted against zoning here. Uh, and uh, through that experience, he got involved in uh, development in the Houston area and bought uh, 1,100 acres adjacent to a development called Country Club Estates, uh, which was entering in bankruptcy. That's something we see, the heights original developers went bankrupt. River Oaks, the original developers went bank- bankrupt. Um, Old Bracewood, the original developers went wow. bankrupt. Oftentimes, we see the, the uh, one of our sayings around the industry is on these 
big communities, the second or third guy in is the one who makes the money, mm-hmm. uh, typically because they come at the end of a cycle uh, when capital is relatively accessible and so people overpay and they have too much uh, in the dirt. So uh, Will Hogg and his brother were able to get this uh, tracked and he really wanted, even though we we're going to have zoning, to really set what he considered the, the style of what suburban Houston should look like. And uh, there was an urban theorist, Ebenezer Howard, in Great Britain that uh, developed this Garden City movement. And it was a series of concentric rings that was like basically bringing the country into the city. It was a reaction to the squalor of 19th century Victorian London. And a number of these communities were built around the United States. Uh, Highland Park uh, in Dallas, River Oaks was designed along this method. One of the inspirations, oddly enough, of these, at that time, suburban communities was uh, English cemeteries. They were designed essentially to be parks so uh-huh. that you know uh, poor English city folks could go out to these cemeteries and have picnics, which they did. Uh, so they took a lot of the landscape planning ideas out of these English cemeteries and implemented it into this Garden City movement. And so, as you said, we saw Riverside Terrace, mm-hmm. um, which kind of became an alternative to River Oaks, particularly for Jewish mm-hmm. and later black families who were deed restricted from a lot of those communities uh, because that was not illegal at that time. That's interesting because those are really some of the prettiest neighborhoods that we have in, in Houston, in the city, for sure. And it's it's interesting to know that they were kind of designed with an influence of parks and cemeteries. Right, absolutely. Well, and they were designed to to have that green space, although mm-hmm. they don't have the parks and amenities you might see in a modern community. Uh, they were designed so that the lots preserved a lot of that green space. Mm-hmm. And and they really have, uh, even with an area like Old Brazewood, where we've seen a lot of the older homes torn down and replaced, have maintained kind of the, the structure, the skeleton of of what was originally intended in those communities. Mm-hmm. And then with the birth of the automobile and everyone having cars, there were auto, auto-oriented auto subdivisions where we had all the freeways that were built and we had this kind of first ring of suburbs like Sharpstown, Glenbrook Valley, um, there was one thing in your presentation I thought that was really funny. It was an old ad advertisement right. in a magazine for homes being sold in Glenbrook Valley, which I like to call the GBV, but that's another story. <laughs> um, they were being sold for $31,000. Right. And they were marketed to executives and businessmen. Today, you look at those subdivisions and they're considered close-in subdivisions. They're experiencing a resurgence. You know, people are moving back into Sharpstown and Westbury and Glenbrook Valley, and there's a lot of great, you know, mid-century architecture still there. They really are experiencing a a revival. Uh, Mm -hmm. Glenbrook Valley, uh, my parents actually grew up there, and uh, my brother lives there now, and they do a homes tour every year. Oh, yeah. Where they have a lot of those uh, mid-century mod homes Uh furnished in the same style, and so... You know, it looks like you've walked into Don Draper's apartment when you go into some of those places. Yeah. So your parents grew up in Glenbrook Valley, did, but you didn't grow up there? No, I, I grew up in the Clear Lake area. Okay. Just out by the moving water. moving out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, the suburbs of that area were were uh, influenced by a couple things. And, you know, here comes the government again. Uh, it was mainly uh, intended for housing for veterans returning back from World War II. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, that's when the government created – some of these were around in the New Deal, but basically created the secondary mortgage market. You know, uh, when people think about loans and houses, I I think about, you know, the scene from It's a Wonderful Life where, you know, Jimmy Stewart is in the Bailey building alone and says, you know, that money's not here. It's in Joe's house, at Frank's house. (laughs) Well, it's not that way now. It's in Goldman Sachs portfolio that they've sold to Norwegian pension funds. That's where your money is. And although you still send that check to the bank, the bank keeps 50 basis points of that and then sends it on to whoever owns this mix of securities. Mm -hmm. And what happened as a result of that is that we now have this flow of money ready to invest into housing. Uh, And there were also a lot of problems with housing stock because we hadn't built very many new homes because we've been through the Depression and then the war. And so we approached it from the attitude. I I put the quote in here uh, by William Levitt that says, uh, no man who owns his own home can be uh, a communist. He has too much to do. And so that was part of the idea as well uh, because uh, people perceived some fairly significant uh, political threats in the U.S. from from communism. So we wanted to make sure we had a way to provide quality housing for people. And uh, actually another election connection, Donald Trump's father worked for William Levitt starting out in the real estate business. Hmm. So um, – it just it always comes back to that, I guess. <laughs> That's right. We're just it's going to be a, a, a Trump era and looped in. Absolutely. So uh, once we started building those houses, we needed the highways. Uh, the federal government had been trying for almost fifty years to get states to build the highways, and first they said we'll give you ten percent, we'll give you fifty percent, and then finally uh, Eisenhower was able to get the Interstate Highway Act passed in the fifties by having the federal government guarantee to pay ninety percent of the cost of highway construction, and so they came up with this plan with. 41,000 miles to connect every state capital with an interstate highway. Uh, And we've seen actually very few additions to the system since then because it so well covered it. Uh, And so that opened up access to these more remote areas. And and if I were to pick uh, kind of a signature figure of of that era, it would be Frank Sharp of Sharpstown. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was uh, the first air – I think it was the first air-conditioned mall in Houston when Sharpstown Mall opened. It was such a big event, uh, Richard Nixon came to the opening. Really? Uh, when he was vice president of the United States. And Can you imagine Trump or Joe Biden coming right. to the opening of, like, River Oaks District? <laughs> exactly. No, it's it's inconceivable today. But but then it was a big deal. And, and one of the innovations that Sharp brought in that era was that he donated the right-of-way for 10 miles of U.S. 59. So if you've ever wondered why at about Chimney Rock, it runs off at this 45-degree angle towards Sugarland. It's because Frank Sharp wanted that highway to go through his property, so he had commercial frontage on both sides. And that was at least oh. what we saw in Houston, the beginning of these mixed-use master plan communities yeah. where there was commercial and residential included within the community. And uh, you may have various opinions about whether that's a good idea or not, but from a public policy perspective, if it allows you to build more highway sooner because you've gotten uh, the the land for free. Uh, in fact, most of the Grand Parkway was built that way, particularly that segment north of of I-10 all the way over to 59 is because the landowners donated that right away. Mm-hmm. Without that, we probably wouldn't have that highway today. Mm-hmm. So uh, it really created this impetus to to start including commercial in these yeah. communities. You could look at it. It's just all development driven and developers – yeah, they say, sure, we'll we'll give you this land if you build a, a freeway. Then we can have all this frontage to 
to build houses and shopping centers and absolutely make a ton of money. And gosh, the the you know the anti-growth people they uh, they don't like that model. <laughs> right. Well, it it's like any tool; it has its positives and its negatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I went to middle school and high school in Kingwood, which was kind of the next round right. of um, of growth in Houston. The King, like you said, the Kingwoods, the Woodlands, um, First Colony, Cinco Ranch, just boom, boom, boom. I remember we moved here in 1981, and we bought my family bought this house in, in the back of Kingwood where it was all being developed. And right. what kind of what I used to do for fun with my little girlfriends was explore these houses that were under construction. I mean, that, that, that was crazy. But we, you know, I remember all, we would just always like walk on these construction sites on the weekends when no one was there. And right. Go upstairs and, you know, do things you weren't supposed to do. <laughs> um, what? Well, no, Wait, what? no, I mean, not really. Um, no, that's really cool. So it was kind of developing as you were growing up. Yeah, yeah, so, it was, it was I mean, totally yeah. developing. Taking shape. Yeah. yeah. I had a very similar experience. We moved to Clear Lake City in 1979. Mm-hmm. And uh, very same thing, run around in those empty houses and yeah. get chased off by the construction workers uh-huh. and um, generally being upset, not any good. Yeah. One one time I um, – we were walking around, and they were also in Kingwood. You know, like you said, they have that Greenbelt Trail right. that snakes throughout the whole community. And they were, I guess, they were. We were walking down one that was under, sort of under construction, and it had rained. And I stepped in this puddle, but it wasn't a puddle; it was a hole. Oh, and no. I stepped into water up into up to my neck. It went oh, up to my, my neck. I will never forget that. I was probably eleven. And my friend was laughing at me so hard. And I was like, I hate Texas. Take me back. <laughs> Take me back to Chicago. Um, and then I had to go home and explain it to my mom. And right. That, I don't know. That was kind of the what it was like growing Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And uh, we had those huge master plan communities that came as a result of creating the MUDs mm-hmm. uh, in those those large blocks of land. Uh, both of those communities were developed by Friendswood mm-hmm. Development, which was originally part of Exxon, right? which uh, is now Lennar, mm-hmm. uh, still very, very active, the number one builder on our market today. One thing I just wanted to get your take on was kind of what, what you predict in the future. What What is, you know, what is housing? What do planned communities look like? Are they, you know, way out in Brenham? Does the Woodlands become its own city. I don't know. Like what what are millennials going to do? Where are they going to live? Sure. Lots of things I'm throwing at you, but um absolutely. I, I think what we're going to see um when you look at Houston in the future, it's going to look something like Los Angeles. Oh no, though not exactly like Los Angeles. I think we'll see uh a couple of things happen. One, you'll see uh it start to be where people don't really ever leave the area that they're in. If you're in the woodlands, um, that'll be the center for your work. Uh, mm-hmm. That'll be the center of your social life. You know, as best I see, you know, people in Orange County don't drive to Burbank or San Bernardino yeah. for things unless they have to. Yeah. And so you see that region almost become a, a series of subregions that are self-contained. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see that. Uh, I think we will also see uh, growth extend far beyond what we ever thought uh, it would do. 
Uh, one of the wild cards there is the self-driving cars mm-hmm. uh, and what that will mean. Um, when you think about 30% of our urban environment is dedicated to driving and parking. Um, I don't know the numbers for Houston, but since Aaron's in Washington, D.C., I know those. The government, the city of Washington, D.C., gets about $90 million a year in parking re- ticket revenue. Um, Not if, bad. If your car drives itself, it doesn't need to park. Mm-hmm. How do the cities come up with that revenue? How mm-hmm. do they replace that revenue? So I think there's a lot of challenges out there for the city uh, that are coming as a result of some of the technological changes that we're seeing. But overall, I think, um, you know, look at the changes we've seen in Houston in the last 25 years. We're the, now the most diverse city in the country. Uh, there are ethnic communities all around town that we have never had before. Uh, I think that Houston will end up being a leader for what a 21st century looks like. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Aaron, do you have any other questions before we go into the lightning round? You know, I'm I, listening to the history of Houston. I, I find it so interesting how there was it, it, so much of it was planned in a way, you know, in our unplanned city that we have a reputation for being so chaotic. I love hearing about, you know, the different stages of of Houston. And I'm, I'm really interested to see if, if that's going to be what we do for the next 50 years. Nancy and I wrote a story recently asking that question. I thought it was really hard. I thought it was really hard to think about. And we kind of ended up kind of, what don't you think, Nancy? We kind of mm-hmm. like split it. We're like, it's going to be dense and it's going to be sprawling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and well, you um, talk about but that. It sounds like a lot of the same themes have been present from the beginning in a, in a way. You're absolutely right about that, Aaron. You think about a 50 year horizon. The Grand Parkway showed up on our thoroughfare plan in 1961. And it finally opened in 2015. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of 50-year investments or commitments are we making to ensure the future growth of our city? And uh, I think that's something we ought to be thinking about. I wonder if we'll build another ring road beyond there. I would doubt that we do. Yeah. I'd be surprised if we do. That's probably a good We're thing. done. We're done with the loops. So. <laughs> <laughs> but not with looped in and not with the lightning round. So, Scott Davis, this is something that we usually end our show with. Sure, I'm a ready. Lightning round of quick questions and quick answers. So, Aaron, I'll start. You can jump in. Okay. <laughs> oh, Aaron. Oh, Thank you. That's the lightning soundtrack. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it came out as great as it always does over phone. But, um. Okay. Here we go. Favorite era of Houston's growth? Uh, I would say the 1920s. Uh, I love those pre-war era garden suburbs. Uh, favorite uh, favorite uh, thing to get at a Mexican food restaurant? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm blowing it. Uh, I would say the beef tacos al carbone or the uh, snapper tacos at El Tiempo. Mm, favorite um, yeah, favorite ethnic restaurant in Houston? Uh, I've got to go to the family here. My wife's uncle owns Mogul Indian Restaurant in Clear Lake, <laughs> and it is outstanding <laughs> on Barrier Boulevard at El Camino Real. <laughs> and the website? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay, and they'll uh, be sending us. They'll be sending us a check for free right. <laughs> <laughs> Our first ad. <laughs> Our first ad. The checks in uh. the mail. <laughs> um, okay, brick or stucco? Brick, and I would paint the brick. Nice. We just did that with our house. Did you really? Yeah. What color? White. That's what I wanted. What'd you do, Nancy? Gray. It was gray. We just yeah. We just kept it. We're gray. about to build a house uh, in Woodshire 
uh, one of those 60s eras mm-hmm. developments. And uh, we're going to go white brick, almost a Federalist style, white brick, black windows, copper spouts. Love it. It's going to look awesome. Love it. Love it. Aaron, next. Oh, uh, well, I was going to ask you favorite Houston neighborhood, but maybe it's the one you're building a house in. So that might. Um, I'm kind of partial to Brace Heights, where I live now. It's close uh, to Galleria and Medical Center. Uh, great neighborhood, lots of families, and a great neighborhood community environment. Next neighborhood to boom. Uh, I would say Inwood Forest or Glenbrook Valley. Nice. All right, you guys, I think on that note, we should wrap things up. Aaron, This is a great episode. Thank you so much for coming, Scott. I thought it was really informative and interesting. Well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Scott, on Looped In. Hope you had fun. And Looped In listeners, we hope you had fun, too. Until next time, please subscribe to Looped In on iTunes and check out more about our podcast and others at HoustonChronicle.com slash podcast. In the meantime, if you have an idea for a show or just want to say hi, you can contact us on Twitter. We're at Ansarnoff and at Aaron Mulvaney. See you next time. Thanks, y'all. I miss you, Houston. (laughs) 